Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, uh, PJ Kershaw partner at Melrose Capital. PJ, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. PJ, can you give a brief background on on who you are and how you got into the crypto space? Yeah, sure. I'm a, a recovering corporate VC. Um, did that for a number of years in, in Singapore inside a uh, private family office. And now spend my time investing mainly in the crypto space, but um, more widely in early stage uh, tech investments. Cool. Um, and how did you find your way down the crypto rabbit hole? Oh, similar. I guess it's a similar story to <coughs> to many. Read the white paper in 2012, and yeah, really sort of just spiraled from there. Sort of started allocating capital in the space about 2013, and and never really stopped. You know, I think once you start grokking some of the stuff that's occurring, it's a very deep rabbit hole. That just sort of goes and goes and goes, and and I think it's um, you know, like many, it's I think it's a very very profound set of technologies and changes that we're we're, we're sort of going through experimentation with now. And uh, what excited you most about the space in terms of like what future? Yeah, you, know, you think a lot about the future. What what sort of initially drew you say, hey, we could do this now that we couldn't do before? It's a good question. I mean, you know, I think. I think, you know, obviously, firstly, the thing that you get is, is is money and money out of the control of governments. I think that's that's fascinating, right? You know, I try and think on long-term timescales. I, I think that as humans, we're pretty bad at thinking in sort of timescales of more than a minute. <laughs> and so I, I try and think of like, you know, what are the long-term ramifications of, of technology changes and what might that look like? in the future and so sort of that that conceptually has progressed to you know i i genuinely believe that we are going to see the unbundling of of a lot of things that could even extend right to the you know the level of the nation state and i think that potentially it could bring about enormous amounts of upheaval and and social unrest what the timescale is for that, I don't know, but I I firmly believe that that is going to happen. And you're working on this project, Baba Fa. Why don't you outline what that project is and how you got involved? Yeah, so I, you know, I was watching a lot of the, I guess, the early attempts um, structuring DAOs and and sort of emergent ideas around commons and Harburger taxes and bonding curves, etc. And it just sort of started fitting together in my head that to actually make one of these things work, that it sort of had to fulfill a a set of criteria. So it had to be able to grow itself um, and it had to be self-sustaining and it basically had to behave like a virus. And and sort of that sent me down this rabbit hole of like, well, how do you actually construct something like that? Now, in technology, things seem to emerge 
often first in porn or gambling for loads of reasons. Human vices always seem to come first. But, you know, I thought that I didn't really want to build anything in porn and thought, well, why don't we have a look at something um, inside gambling and what would that look like? And sort of that led to the construction of the, the, the white paper that we wrote. And, yeah, I mean, at, at this point, it is nothing more than a thought experiment. We haven't built it. We haven't engaged anyone to build it. I think someone will build it at some point. But, you know, I, I think that because of the nature of a lot of these projects, they're going to need to be built anonymously um, because they are going to be game-changing organizations or entities and they will raise the ire of regulators and um, you know I think that the people that are, are going to build those will will need to be anonymous and sort of out of the reach of the law I, can't, I just can't see it happening any other way you know I look at I look at something like FOMO 3D you know I, I, I thought that was a really really significant development in the sector you know and it really sort of triggered me off thinking about you know well, what if you could create incentive chains to make people behave well you know because i i'm not i'm not a big proponent of, of governance tokens and governance projects you know i actually think it's somewhat of a fallacy why not well like i think that you know we, we've been trying to figure out governance for 70,000 years, right? And we've largely failed. So, you know, I just think there's this sort of arrogant rationality of, of from engineers saying, oh, we're going to solve governance. And it's like, yeah, I, I just don't have, I don't have strong conviction that that's suddenly going to solve problems. I think that there's going to be elements of it that we need, but I think that the, the, the emergent projects that we're going to see in the next, say, 20 years, these big commons and, and, autonomous organizations, I think that the, the governance will actually just be complex, intertwined incentive systems um, that will basically reward you for behaving well and for building the network and looking after the common. And I think that, that that also makes sense to me conceptually if I think about at some point we are going to have AI systems that are leading these and I, I can't see that governance in the way that we think about it at the moment is going to play a part. Can you unpack the difference a little bit between what you just described and uh, in terms of what you are bullish on and the governance tokens that you're, that you're not bullish on? Like, what, what are the difference between the two, tactically or philosophically? Yeah, so, I mean, if, let's just say, let's just look at it from a, like a democratic point of view, right? So Churchill you know, famously said the greatest argument against democracy is a conversation, you know, five-minute conversation with your average voter. And he also said, you know, democracy is the worst form of governance apart from all the rest. You know, we, we, we just genuine, genuinely haven't actually come up with, like, really solid forms of governance. You know, each of them have massive failings. And, you know, I, I can see that, you know, with these governance projects at the moment we're going to build voting systems um and and ways of managing a crowd to make a decision but i just don't think it's terribly interesting i, I just don't i don't think it's going to be the ending point 
I think that the ending point is going to be incentive chains because incentives incentives drive all behaviour. And so I think that that's what it's going to look like. So instead of things like quadratic voting or, or you know, mechanisms to change how people vote, change how they're incentivized to participate in the network natively? Yeah, more or less. And I think that, you know, you will be, you'll be incentivized to behave in the benefit of all, and you'll be incentivized to not behave badly as well. That's why I think the construction of um, a lot of these, these DAOs and, and commons is it's super important to really, really nail the um, incentive chains before any code is written. Like it's really, really hard to come up with the incentive chain that will actually grow the network, incentivize good behavior, and allow all of those those elements to come together that will actually drive the thing forward. It's much, much harder than it sounds. And, you know, I would like to see more in the industry of people actually documenting, here's the incentive chain. You know, here's the way that we see that this thing is going to grow and and to have sort of more open public discourse about that. You know, I think I think that that will be super interesting when people are talking about that more. Yeah. And can you unpack... Uh, a little bit, you know, for for audience, let's let's uh, build a foundation here. What is sort of the the problem, or, or we can unpack the, sort of the tragedy of the commons, and how are DAOs and commons, you know, projects, etc., is trying to uh, ameliorate or fix the problems? I think that the concept that we currently have of companies as entities that are made to maximize profit for shareholders is a concept that has reached its zenith. And I, and I think that it's going to, I think that what crypto is going to bring is an entirely new set of organizations where the benefit flows, the, 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 the value accrues to the users inside the networks. Um, and I think that that is such a profound and powerful um, concept that people will be able to interact with these commons and they will be cared for and they will be able to work inside them and they will be able to effectively earn inside them as well. And I, I it hasn't been done yet, but I just that my I think that's where the the the, the future is going. I think that capitalism also has has kind of reached its natural endpoint. You know, I think that you know we haven't had capitalist systems for that long um, when we talk about sort of human prehistory. And so, I think that it would be a mistake for us to just think that that's going to continue forever because it's not. And so, I think that. There's other major changes in the world at the moment, which sort of all point towards, you know, some big changes coming. And again, I sound I, I sound really melodramatic about it, right? And I'm not. I just think that I think it's going to happen. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the timescale, but kind of when I look at everything and and where the current state of the world is at, and where the current state of the technology is at. You know, my natural conclusion is to draw a line towards the development of these types of tools and technologies. Say more about this. 
what do, why has capitalism reached its zenith? What does that mean for that to be true? And and what changes can we can we expect because of that? I had the benefit, I guess, of growing up in New Zealand, where we consider ourselves like super uncorrupt, right? And then you know that's kind of cute, um, but it's super naive because when you're out in the um, and working in a lot of I've worked in a lot of developing markets and worked with a lot of politicians in developing markets, and you find out pretty rapidly that sort of corruption is the name of the game, and that's how everything works, and that's driven by greed and it's driven by capitalist ideals and you know maybe I'm being looking at it through rosy tinted glasses but I just feel that there's a better way that we can do things as a collective group and I think that only now with the emergence of the tech stack that's being built around crypto more widely as an industry I think that we finally have got the tools that we are actually going to be able to build systems that can actually have a chance at making a different reality I don't think it was I just don't think it was possible before you know this this you know computer science breakthrough and so that part of it you know really excites me I just think that it's an idea whose whose time has is coming to an end. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I can, you know, like this is just out and out guesswork, right? Like I can't point at any event and say that's going to be the downfall there or that's the reason why. It's just, again, it's a trending of of a lot of different things, you know, for right from like the right the rise of authoritarianism around the world to lots and lots of things, you know. Yeah, sort of the, the debate is, is this sort of the end of capitalism or is it sort of an era of hyper-capitalism and markets in... Yeah, who knows? (laughs) Who knows? I just think there's a better way. I just just think there's a better way we can do things. And and I think that the technology is coming down the pipe pretty quickly that's going to allow that to happen. And I think it's going to be fascinating, fascinating to watch because I also think that it's, you, you know, it's going to be so profound, some of these changes, right? Like if you consider that, let's say within, and what do you reckon, within five years, I don't even think you'll need to be that clever and you can effectively be able to hide your wealth, right? And I reckon anyone will be able to do it. So that then makes the ability of the nation state to tax, like it it heavily degrades that. And if the nation state can't tax, you know, there's going to be all sorts of problems. So I think like... I think that there's like a number of things that are all going to happen sort of roughly at the same time. And I don't think they're a long way away either. I certainly think that it's going to be within our lifetime. Totally. Um, so talk about what DAOs are and why are they fundamentally game-changing? Well, they're autonomous um, organizations, right? So they effectively run themselves. Um, they, don't need, they don't need managers or boards or leadership teams. They effectively, in my opinion, will be a cluster of people behaving in a way that is then rewarded by that entity with probably a native token, which then has its own way of recycling itself within that system. And depending on what its point is, you know, it could do things like build value 
you know, so in, in Baba Father One, the ways we constructed it is that we have it so that it automatically buys Bitcoin. Part of the funds that flow through automatically go to buy Bitcoin and provably burn it. So that effectively means that the underlying token has some part of its value is inextricably linked to the holdings of Bitcoin that underlie it. Um, so I think you're going to see things like that. I think I think you're also going to see, I think you're going to see in, in time, I think you're going to see things like healthcare DAOs where people will buy their generic drugs from like a healthcare DAO and that healthcare DAO will actually take short positions on listed farmers' stock. Like I, I just think that makes sense, right? Like you will have people working in their collective benefit that is for the collective benefit of the people. And I think that these entities will actually also actively be involved in bringing down some of the corporate structures that exist today. And you'll be able to do it slowly at first and then it will they will get very big very fast um, because it will just make sense for people to be involved in them. I think that, I think that that's going to be one of the biggest things about it is that it will just be so compelling for me to be involved in certain DAOs because the benefit to me will far outstrip me not being involved. And then by doing that, I make the collective stronger and more powerful, and you have flywheel effects that that roll. And I think I think these 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 organisations will get massive, and they will be global. And they'll make some of today's companies look tiny. And the benefit being economic upside? Yeah, look, I think I, I, I think I think you're gonna see it sort of right across the spectrum, right? Like I think that there will be economic upside for those that are involved. I, I kind of also believe that, you know, I, me personally, I think that equality is a myth, right? So go back in any stage in, you know, human prehistory, like, you know, there is there really hasn't ever been a time you can point out and be like, oh, we're, you know, we're all equal then, apart from maybe when we're roaming around in bands. But even then, you know, one guy's going to be faster than the other or bigger than the other, etc. So I think that, you know, the reward mechanisms that sit in the front of these DAOs will obviously, you know, similar to um, Bitcoin, you know, it will reward the first users commensurately to, to uh, be early adopters. Uh, and so, again, if you think about the sort of uh, viral growth mechanisms that have to be built into some of these things, um, you know, you will get more economic reward for joining these networks earlier. Let's take uh, a public good like roads or, you know, a question uh, people who criticize libertarian, you know, uh, philosophy always have is who, who builds the roads? Like, let's take a public good. Uh, how will DAOs or other commerce projects like fix this in a new way? Like what's an example of it? I'd have to think about it, but I'm sure it can be done. You know, like I've thought about that pharmacy example that I gave you and I'm sure that'll be done. Roads. Yeah. Like public goods. You'd have to think that you'd have to think that at some point we figure out how to do public goods better. Right. You know, like there's so much inefficiency that exists um, at the moment inside that. And, 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 you know, at, at the moment, the, the money effectively comes from from the people anyway, you know, in forms of either tax or 
council, uh, taxes to council or, or rates, etc. So like the, the, the money already exists inside the system. It's just figuring out how to apportion it in a better way. So again, you kind of probably have to take a step back and go, well, you know, do you even have councils? You know, do you even have local government? Like what, what does that, what does that look like next? Because once you're tackling some of those problems, you know, you'd have to probably be in the position that, you know, big government is either gone or is, or is dying or has disappeared. Do you know what I mean? Like it's hard to comprehend sort of what that might look like, but I, I think it can be done. What do you think, like zooming out a little, like what is the future of, of governments and how will that road to get there? Like, What would that look like? I don't know. I don't know. I think, you know, like I think, I think something that's really interesting that's happening at the moment is, you know, regulation around crypto. So you're seeing all this regulatory arbitrage. I think that that, that, that's a little bit of a, a little bit of an insight into kind of what what might be coming because you know similarly like when the you know when the, when the printing press first merged the the church in europe did everything it could to shut it down because it removed all of the power from the church as the sort of central um point of information but all that happened was that the printing presses then shifted into areas where the church wasn't strong and so you had areas in, you know, Bavaria, et cetera, that suddenly became these hotbeds of information because that's where all the printing presses popped up. And so I think the same thing's happening with crypto, right? You're seeing all these um, states and entities who have got fuck all going for them. Yeah, that's maybe a little bit unfair. But things like, you know, like Malta. Malta's like, we, we love crypto. Everyone come, come to us, right? Because to them, it's a massive win. You know, if you look at the history of Singapore and how Singapore was created, um, Lee Kuan Yew did a very, very similar thing um, with Singapore in creating safe harbour for money. You know, because Singapore is, what, 30 kilometres east to west, 20 kilometres north to south, and it's got nothing. It's got no natural resources. It's got nothing, right? And so he said, well, I'm going to make this a hub, and I'm going to make this safe for everyone to put their money in, because everyone around there is corrupt. So, you know, you know I, so, so I, think, I, I think what you might see happening in the, in the first instance is what we're seeing now, which is this regulatory arbitrage situation. And then I even think a step further than that, I think you'll start seeing um, special economic zones um, get set up where they have even, even further than just having sort of crypto-friendly legal structures you know i think that you actually then start to see the emergence of cryptocurrencies in and of themselves and crypto tokens as as as, as native assets that are, that are used inside those special economic zones and i know again i don't think that that's too far away you know all it takes is you know a, a state to to be failing i mean i, I was listening to a podcast the other day and naval Ravikant said something interesting which is he was like you know at some point in time, a failing country is just going to switch their currency to Bitcoin, most likely. And he was like, all they need to be is desperate enough and smart enough. And I, and I think he's right. You know, <laughs> like that's, that is all it's going to take. So I think, I think you're going to see these sort of baby steps. But, you know, I think that sort of Mother America has, has lost control of her money. 
And you can see that in loads and loads of different ways. But I think sort of the, the cat's out of the bag, right? Like it's not, it's not coming back. And yeah, I, I, I think you're going to continue to see that dispersal of talent, the dispersal of capital, and you're going to see um, new centres arise where it's just purely in the benefit of those actors inside those governments or states. What happens after that? No idea. <laughs> because if they're successful experiments, right, then that's sort of a it's a slippery slope. But yeah, I think I think probably that's about as far out as I can guess. Um, and while we're you know at a fifty thousand foot view, how do you think about this with the intersection of AI? I know that's something you think about. Yeah, look, I don't know a lot about AI, right? I, I find AI a very um, it's a very difficult space to invest in um, because. You know, so I just find it very specialised. But I, I do think that, again, if I sort of draw the line out into the future and what I think it looks like, you know, AI, as far as some sort of friendly AI, is is, is going to be involved in these, you know, autonomous organisations and commons. Like, it, 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 it is. Like, fundamentally, it is. Um, how, how that emerges... I'm unsure, you know, and I think that it's it carries um, enormous risks if we get it wrong, um, because we need to ensure that uh, we are looked after, um, because we just aren't that smart. So we do, we need to sort of stack the um, cards in our favour. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, going back to ground level, can you introduce what bonding curves are and why they're important? Bonding curves. Again, I'm pretty limited on bonding curves. You should ask Simon. Uh, Simon is at Delo Rivia. He's, he's the man to talk to about bonding curves. But effectively, it, it is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it is a similar concept to being sort of, uh, if you're first in, you're getting um, higher rewards and then you can effectively sell back your token back into that market and the liquidity should be there. I guess one of the uh, questions I have about bonding curves is they seem to work well if you've got a growing market, but I'm not sure what happens if you know a market falls apart and how that unwinds and what that looks like. But you know, I think it's an interesting concept. I think I think Harvard taxes is a fascinating concept. I think that that is definitely definitely uh, unpack that concept for the audience. Right. Yeah. So Harvard tax is effect, effectively it's a, a self selected tax on an item that in the in the purest in the purest sense of the term. Let's say I own my house, and I say my house is worth ten dollars. And then, therefore, I, I'm prepared to pay 10% tax on that, and so I pay a dollar. But if anyone is happy to come along and pay more for that, the, 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 the underlying asset is always for sale. So there's, there's never a position of, um, of having almost private property. Almost everything sits almost in custodianship. And then you have to self-assess tax. And if anyone wants to come along and uh, buy that or, and, and, and hence pay more tax, then they're able to do so. 
I, I do have a problem with Habiga taxes as well, to the extent that I think that we are in a world where, you know, m- money is is very unequally distributed. And I think if you jumped into a system where you had Habiga taxes, uh, you know, the rich would win again anyway. So, but but I think that conceptually, I think conceptually, it's a, it's a really really fascinating framework. And I think that there's ways that you can modify it to get similar outcomes. But, you know, you, you have to really change the concept of what is private property ownership. And I think that's, that's really interesting in and of itself as well. Um, we built a modified Harbiger tax system into the Baba Far white paper, um, which I think, uh, if built, would work um, quite well. But yeah, I think it's it's fascinating. I think it's hard. It'd be hard to introduce into capitalist society. But hard slash never going to happen. <laughs> but I think that we can and will um, inside crypto native networks. I think it's definitely going to happen. So you, when you say you're you're concerned about equality, um, you know, there's a lot of you know scenarios in which inequality is increased. In terms of you know crypto getting more mainstream adoption, what is what do you say when you mean equality? Do you mean like just wealth inequality straight up? Do you mean a sort of quality of participation of like voice exit? Or what does equality mean to you there? I I just think equality is a fallacy. I mean I know a lot of people will get at that on Twitter about that probably, but like it just I just I just don't I, I don't I I think it's a an ideal that can never be reached and. Yeah, I just I, I just think it's a fallacy, and I mean right across the board. You know, some people are wealthier than others, and some people are more talented than others, and you know that's really tied up in what drives humans and progress. Um, is that some people are able to operate at, at different levels, and you know that makes us. I think it's sort of inherently baked into what we are and who we are. Um, you know, the 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 the, the people that you know. The people that have tried experiments for getting equality, you know, were largely, you know, probably if anything, were, um, you know, communist groups, and they ended up sort of bringing us millions, hundreds of millions of deaths. You know, I mean, I'm just, I'm skeptical of of anyone that tells me that they're uh, seeking equality. I just, I just don't believe in it. Like, don't get me wrong. I think we can, I think we can bridge the gap and make things and make things better and easier and cl- and closer. But but I also think that you know con- conceptually I just think it's a a, a flawed argument. It's a, it's a it's a dream you can never achieve. Were there any other ideas from Glenwell's book Radical Markets or his paper I believe Liberal Radicalism that you were inspired by? Look, I, th- I think there's loads of interesting ideas coming out of the woodwork on this, um, and I think there would, there'll be more. Um, again, what's exciting is that because we've been able to create a system of scarcity, provable scarcity and and value sitting inside digital assets. I think that we're able to completely upend, now that we have that and that exists, I think that we now can, can completely look, uh, re-look at what ownership even means and and kind of what the optimal systems can can look like for for everyone. And so, you know, funnily enough, I think that they will probably be more equal than they are today. 
What did you take from the book World After Capital? Um, I've only I've only read bits of it. I think you know, obviously the whole USV team's very sharp, right? You know, proven over time as just brilliant investors. Um, and I think that Albert is he's, he's right onto something. You know, I, I think fundamentally I agree with the the bits um, that I've read. And you know, again, it ties in it ties into kind of my thinking about that we are reaching the end of that cycle of capitalism you know i think that you know he points out that you know with technology a lot of things just get rated to zero you know distribution basically marginal you know your marginal increase in cost just goes to zero for so many things um and you know that you know we're still only seeing the start of that playing out and you know the more and more and more that plays out um you know, again, it's, it's going to have profound impacts on, on society. You know, there's a sort of framework in terms of what capitalism you know, is really good at solving sort of, you know, a certain set of problems, problems that are where value is sort of narrowly created, easily captured and over a short and defined time horizon, but really struggles where, where there are areas where they create negative externalities. You know, it's like hard to price an oil spill or, you know, tragedy of commons as we public park trash. So you get things like climate change, public health or education or infrastructure. And maybe crypto can make make these problems more legible or you know implement price mechanisms in places where they didn't exist prior. Can create your shared network incentives, you know, that you were just discussing before. And then of course the no reliance on third parties. And, and going back to like some uh, small or or sub instances of of price mechanisms, you got things like income share agreements, pay to move instruments pay for discrete units of education. There's just some, some terms of how I think about it. Yeah, and look, I think you're right. I, I, I think you're right. Like, it is going to happen. And again, it's, 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 it's just, it, it, you know, in my mind, it's just it's a convergence of loads and loads of different things. I think, you know, like my, my, my background's in, in politics and anthropology, right? So that's what I did at, at uni. And and then I've worked in tech for uh, fifteen years, but we're one of the things that excites me so much about crypto. What really just always grabs me is that you're seeing this melding of concepts and ideas that have been talked about for thousands of years. So you're seeing complex issues in, in the humanities and in philosophy, um, and even you know as simple as well, not simple but money. Moneyness and what is value and what is property, and all of those things smashing into one another. You know, for any type of student of history, it's you know, crypto is literally the most amazing thing that is going on right now. Because kind of once you sort of fundamentally can grok the power of, of what these things are, you can kind of look backwards and go, "Wow, you know, we're really going to change a lot of what we've constructed." And yeah, I mean, it's, I find that, you know, when you're so far down the rabbit hole, it's, it's sometimes hard to understand, understand why more people aren't down the rabbit hole, which is probably not a, you know, we don't want everyone down here. We will be going insane, but it's hard to sort of poke your head up the air sometimes when you're so deep thinking about these things, because it does, well, for me at least, it does sort of become quite consuming. I don't know about you. You consumed by crypto? Yes, <laughs> but uh, my day job is is venture capitalist, and yours too. Um, 
I'm not uh, 80% crypto the way you are, but I, I'm spending the biggest chunk more than any other sector. But let, let's sort of transition a little bit into how you sort of think about your intersection of, of crypto and traditional venture capital, how, you know, how sort of, you know, uh, the crypto investing landscape will evolve, like will it be traditional VCs, uh, traditional crypto funds like Pantera, Polychain, et cetera, new players? Like what's, what's the future of crypto investing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There are lots of thoughts on this. So I think like what, one of the, you know, one of the most profound changes that sort of happened on the path to decentralization of VC was definitely um, AngelList and platforms like AngelList that suddenly unlocked the ability for international investors to access deals at the same terms that were being done um, in the Valley and, and deals were happening in the Valley. That <coughs> excuse me. That that was enormous, and I, you know, I can say that because you know I was within that first sort of probably bunch of people that was really pushing the envelope on that back in like you know twenty twenty thirteen, and that is kind of uh, you know that's that's then led to the sort of broader theme of this decentralization of, of VC, which is still occurring. The interesting thing about crypto is that it completely changed the liquidity dynamic for a lot of funds. So, you know, going into this bear market, there's a lot of guys who potentially would be very good fund managers who would be deep underwater at the moment. And that sort of may mean that that's the end of their career, which is unfortunate. That's just bad timing. Um, But the reverse happened as well. Which no one was really talking about, which is that there was a whole lot of terrible fund managers sitting on bad investments, and some of those bad investments were able to spin themselves into some sort of blockchain company, put a token out there. Some of them were worth over a billion dollars, and these guys were able to get liquidity and make their funds look good. So I still think that fundamentally they're bad investors, you know, but that come up and will come in the next fund or the next fund or the next fund. But I think that, you know, there's a lot of guys that are also saved <laughs> by the, the crypto upside. I mean, the liquidity thing, especially for a guy like me, the liquidity thing is enormous, right? Because, you know, in the in the uh, halcyon days of 2017, you know, you, you could literally roll from, you, you could roll from investment to liquidity in some cases within like 90 days. You know, it was ridiculous what was happening. And of course, that had to stop. But nonetheless, these are liquid markets. Um, and they will only, um, I believe in time, increase in their size. You know, I think that you have to think about the way that you invest and manage a portfolio really, really differently. Um, I think that the new types of funds that are going to come into space. I think they're going to have three quite discrete parts of them. I think you're going to have to have a OTC desk and a quant trading function because you're going to be, you're going to have inventory that you're going to need to get rid of. So I think that that's like going to be a really important part of the fund. And I think that you'll have income generation out of that as far as taking, you know, long short strategies with the quant trading side of it. Then I think you'll have you know, Lawson Baker talks about a lot a working fund that sits sort of in the middle. And I think that, you know, and Jake talks about his generalized mining, et cetera. 
you know, whatever. Same thing. You're doing work inside networks to become um, a valued actor inside that network and be able to uh, get inventory that you want and the projects that you believe are going to win long term. And then I think that you are going to have a traditional VC venture function that sits on the other side. So I think that to LPs, it's going to be a really different proposition because, you know, you have to start to think about, well, what does the liquidity cycle look like to an LP? You know, do you do you have, say, a three-year lock-in and then you're going to get, do you have redemptions or do you just have disbursements? Do you know what I mean? So I think there's going to be some really interesting developments around that. And if you look at the likes of what the multi-coin guys are doing or even the polychain guys, like, They've kind of had to figure this out on the fly and having to spin out all these separate entities. But I think if you were zooming out now and saying, right, we want to create this from scratch, I think it would look a bit different than what the funds do right now. What do you think? Me, me look different, meaning it would, it would look the way that you just described it should look or, or how will it look different? Yeah, I think, I, I, I think it will look something like that. I think you need all of those pieces. I think you can't, I don't think you will be able to maximize um, your gains without having all three of those engines operating inside the same fund. I think they're all very important pieces. Do you think traditional VCs will be able to orient that way? Or or do you think even traditional crypto funds will be able to orient that way? Or will there be sort of a new set of emergent winners? For, uh, and my question is, you know, I was talking to Joey Krug from Pantera, who I'm, I'm a big fan of, and he was saying that in the next five years, uh, the crypto funds that will be the winners in five years from now are the ones that are winning today. So there won't be that high turnover, except in, in the subfield of sort of, you know, quant crypto investing, basically, but that polychain, Pantera, et cetera. Yeah, it's a good question, right? Like, what, bottom line is, and I, I had a few tweets with Kyle Zamani about this a few weeks ago. Bottom line is you still have to pick winners. You know, I, I, think, I think everyone kind of gets a little bit convoluted and lost in the weeds you still have to pick winners and you have to be able to be deploying capital at the right price on the winners. It really is as simple as that, right? So, you know, I think that there's going to be a place at the table for anyone that can, can, that can consistently pick winners. Same, same as in venture. I, I think that traditional VCs are going to have a difficult time um, reorienting towards this, I think it almost becomes a subset of venture capital all by itself or even just a subset of investment all by itself. Because I think that the return, I think the return dynamics will look different as well. So, yeah, I think, yeah, traditional VCs will find it hard. I think that the the crypto funds will be able to kind of get themselves there. And I certainly think that the new fund managers will look really different when, when they do emerge. And will the who are going to be the LPs in, in this type of these types of new vehicles? I don't know. That's what everyone's trying to figure out, right? <laughs> you know, certainly. Uh, I mean, I, I spent the last few months in um, Asia and Europe and Dubai, and spoke to a lot of LPs. And you know, like this, you, you, it's easy to forget how big the kind of education gap is. You know, like. You're still having a lot of conversations, and it's you know it's blockchain, not Bitcoin. You know, it's just like, ah, where do you even start? So, you know, I think there is obviously a a subset of investors that are going to get it. I think that there's a load of 
funds out there trying to chase, find find those people, you know. And obviously, you know, everyone's sort of chicken littling and running around saying the world's ended. But, you know, for those of us that have already lived through a crypto winter, you know, it does feel a little bit like we've seen this all before. On that note, you, you've invested in, you know, in stuff way beyond crypto. Um, you know, Rappi being a company we, we share in common, uh, sort of an Instacart for uh, Latin America. Um, how, how do you sort of describe your, your early stage thesis, early stage investing thesis? I think about it in different ways, right? So as far as constructing a thesis, right, you're, 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 you're reading a lot, you're thinking a lot, you're looking at what's happening. And then you kind of get to a point that, you kind of roughly know what you're looking for, and then it's all about getting good deal flow, right? And then so, you know, I look at probably about a thousand deals a year, and I might invest in five to ten a year, maybe. Kind of, and normally it's a pretty quick yes when it's a yes, because you're saying no to so many, but you, you kind of roughly know what you are looking for. So, you know, going back to say wrapping, so. That was so. Rappi was part of a thesis that I had that I looked at the unit economics of the logistics and delivery businesses, and I could see that they weren't. They were going to be, in my opinion, less profitable in the developed markets, and they were going to be more profitable in the developing markets. For a number of reasons, one you can the labor is obviously a lot cheaper, warehousing's a lot cheaper, and a lot of these markets are coming out of poverty. And so, as those markets naturally grow, you're just going to have bigger markets. And again, I'm talking on a long-term timescale. So, you know, and that was one thesis I had. And so, I, I made an investment into Shaldal in Bangladesh um, and into into Rappi as well in, in Latin America, and they both they both sort of fit that thesis. And then you look at something like a, you know, a Red Mart in, in Singapore, which I, the whole time I was saying, I think this is a terrible investment. They raised 70 or 80 million before failing effectively and being acquired by Lazada. But the, the, the unit economics of it just never worked. It just never worked. You can slice and dice it however you want to look at it. It just never worked. So that was that particular thesis um and then with the crypto stuff you know i was i think that anyone that's been um around since i guess you know 2012 2013 you know like you don't have to scratch too far and they're probably up the bitcoin maximalist end of the scale everything's a scale and you know i just felt that you know, it was going to be an emergent technology and that it was 100% going to be a thing. And so that's why I sort of, I have a highly, very highly concentrated portfolio inside crypto. And, you know, one of the other benefits of, of having bear markets like this is that you're able to, some of the best investing that I did in crypto is between 2014 and 2016 because VCs are offering pretty shitty terms were really good businesses and if you're able to get in on those deals you can you can make really good gains um and you know i saw that in the last cycle and then also what's interesting this time around is that with some of these liquid assets 
if you know the buy price, if you like an asset and you know the buy price of where a VC entered, you know, there's opportunity to be able to buy effectively under the value of where VC is bought, right? So I'll give you an example like Maker. So I think A16Z, they bought what, 11%, 15%, something like that of the network. And I think they paid a blended rate of something like $340. Now, if you were long on that asset or wanted to be long on that asset, you had about three or four days last week where you could have bought a significant holding for about 320. So, you know, again, that's the first time in, in venture at least that those sort of opportunities have existed as well. Um, and I, I think that's that's really interesting as well. And I think that, you know, you're going to see more of that, you know, if, if the bear market continues, which it, you know, probably will. Yeah. Um, and how do you think about differentiating between investing in, in Asia versus U.S.? You know, it's, it's, it's definitely different. Um, the thing the thing, a lot of U.S. investors miss is that, and this is kind of part of the reason why, you know, like Uber failed in, in Asia, is that, you know, there's a lot of markets in Asia which are much bigger than the U.S., much bigger. And then there's a, a lot of markets which are similar size to the U.S., and you can't just roll into these markets and basically be kind of here's one solution that fits everyone because it just doesn't work. So if you look at why Grab, for example, did so well against Uber, they literally customized the app individually for each different country. So, you know, if you open Grab in Indo versus Singapore versus Myanmar, it is like a whole different set of services it's got the same UI and UX to an extent, but it's very customized to the locals and, and the way of doing business in that country. And and Uber just missed the boat on that completely. And I and I see that sort of I see that time and again with a lot of US companies that are going into, you know, Southeast Asia and, and Greater Asia, that there is nowhere near enough time spent on looking at the localization of apps to fit the culture so i think that i think that's a really big thing and you know just recognizing that also that each of these cultures have got completely different frames of reference for um what deals mean and what ip means and what contracts mean you know like the chinese have a completely different concept of ip than what americans do and so the americans you know like oh these assholes you know they're going to steal our stuff. And, but the Chinese actually culturally don't have an issue with that. <laughs> like, what's the problem? You know? But that extends, that extends right across all of these different markets and groups that what we consider Western norms are, are just that. They're Western norms. Like, these other countries and markets don't care. It's irrelevant to them. Um, and I think that, you know, that was a great benefit of, of, of me being able to spend a lot of time in these markets. Like, it gives you you know, a wonderful uh, frame. I'll give you a wonderful frame of reference for sort of figuring out um, what's happening. But I, but I certainly think that it's something that US um, centric investors should think about a lot more. Yeah. How do you think about just fund investing more so on the LP side? Like, what, what would be your or uh, anything you've done some LP investments? Like, what's what's what is your approach to sort of picking emerging managers or just picking managers broadly? 
Yeah, no, that's a good question, right? Like the, the, the interesting thing about investing in fund managers is that, you know, fund one is always the dream, you know? So almost irrespective of check size, you can normally get into someone's fund one if you're close enough to them. Fund two is usually what, 36 months after fund one? There's still nothing really to look at from fund one apart from maybe a little bit of upside. But fund three is basically all the LPs are looking at the performance of fund one. And that's where you get real institutional inflow, like big inflow. That's when a fund will go from being a $50 million fund to a $250 million fund is between two and three. And so as a smaller check writer, um, I have to try and invest in either fund one or fund two. Now, most people will tell you that fund two is the riskiest. I don't think it is. I think that um, I like looking at what someone's done in fund one um, and because often I would have seen a lot of those deals anyway and it'll give me a feel for what they're thinking about and then fund two, uh, all of the LP investments I've made in the funds have always been a fund two um, because if you're right, then basically you can almost always grandfather over when other people are just getting locked out because it's institutional capital. And then also, I think you have to have like a, a sort of a broader thesis about what you're trying to achieve with a with a, a fund as well. You know, so I look at something like Jungle Ventures, which I'm an LP in, and they've got a massive, massive deal flow in India and Indonesia that I just simply wouldn't be able to get. But I want exposure to those markets. And so, you know, I use it as a tool to... Basically, fill out fill out my portfolio uh, in, in ways that I in ways that I can't do. So that, that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, and maybe we'll close on this. What do you think is sort of the future of of decent decentralized VC broadly or fully decentralized VC? Oh, good question. I don't know. I think that like you can kind of see a world, right? That you have these loose networks of people like analysts who are producing analyst reports who get paid in some native token for identifying uh, talent and then even uh, associates, which is doing diligence, which is broadcast to a network, which can then also be purchased. And they would have to, similar to say what Numero is doing, I think that they would then have to stake based on how good they felt their reporting or diligence was and that a partner who's even got more at stake could buy those reports but could also slash their stake and I think you I, I think what might happen is you might get these kind of loose groups of people working together on multiple deals all over the world on a sort of deal by deal basis and I think that there will be a, a token that sits below it and I think that there will it will involve a lot of staking and and because on the other side if you look at like where does the capital come from well you've already got big sort of crowdfunding platforms so I think it would just be the extension of that you know I look at something like AngelList or Bank to the Future you know they're probably the two most likely to, to do this but I, again I think it will probably happen someone will do it uh, because there's no reason if, you, if you're looking at it now right like I live in New Zealand I've, I have no desire to uh, move to the US or whatever but I do have proprietary deal flow so it's like how do I make the best use of that whilst still you know, living in New Zealand. And I think that that kind of ties more broadly into like, what is the future of work, right? And I think most people would agree it's going to be 
fully distributed. And, and, and so what does that look like in VC? It, it's something I've been thinking about a bit recently, actually. But yeah, I think it looks something like that. I think that's a good place to, uh, good place to close. If people want to learn more about uh, what you're up to and, and want to catch you online or, or read more, where would you point them and what should they stay tuned for? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter, ranting and raving at PJ Kershaw NZ, K-E-R-S-H-A-W-N-Z, PJ Kershaw. Um, yeah, that's about it. I write about all sorts of weird stuff comes out of my mind. Yeah, but mate, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 